0: Thank you, Molly. That was a particularly good reading of scripture. Well, again, my name is uh, Marshall. Let me add my welcome to those who have welcomed you already. Glad to be with you. Uh, a couple other things I want to announce. Uh, very excited, especially about this first one. After uh, many years, uh, two to be exact, many prayers, uh, we have hired... Uh, the, 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 the ink is dry... Uh, we have hired a high school youth director. Uh, so, if you, this has been like a labor of love and a lot of work for several folks on our team. And so, uh, starting in May, we have a new high school director who will be with us. His name is Ethan. Marshall. His wife's name is London with a Y. We're so excited to welcome them and we're really excited also that they're able to start in May as you even was just alluded to a moment ago. So many folks go away for the summer uh, including our youth and so the chance for them to be here in May to get to know some of our youth before everybody starts going away and uh, and all that. So we're super excited to welcome them next month. I'll talk about this more at our congregational meeting uh, in May uh, but Ethan and his wife London will be here May 1st so thank God for answered prayers. Uh, I will say it's A lot longer than we expected. Um, Secondly, I do want to announce that also this coming Saturday, I'd love to invite you to our home, my wife, Allison, our home for Welcome to Grace. We do this about once a quarter. It's a great chance to get to know our staff better, to get to know uh, my wife and I better in our home. Uh, and also just a little bit know more about the church. It's a fun evening. So it's this coming uh, Saturday, April 22nd at 630. You can RSVP by emailing to Allison. Her email is in the bulletin uh, with the announcement. So we'd love to have you. If you've never been to one, maybe you've been coming to church for years and you've never been, you're welcome. If this is your first time ever, you're welcome. It's really for everybody uh, who would like to, uh, to come. It's a good, uh, fun evening, um, so hope you can come this coming Saturday night to our home. Let me pray before we uh, look at the scripture and start a new sermon series. God, we, um, we come to you to a story that we have just heard read that is it is fraught with emotion. It is fraught with betrayal. There is so much going on And honestly, there's a lot of pain in this story. And so as we come to the story of Joseph, we pray that you would be with us as we even look at our own pain and the triumphant love that you have for your people in and through that pain. So be with us, Lord Christ, for your son's sake, we pray. Amen. The story of Joseph is a story of brothers, Joseph and his brothers. I have a brother and we're close in age, we're close in just about every way, and when we were, we love each other fiercely, but we fought as children and still fight a little bit like cats and dogs. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details, but this is true. This week I was on an email chain with my brother where we were ranking our fights, like, you know, the greatest fight of all time, and so thankfully our fights have kind of, you know, it's been about a decade, so we're probably due for a good one. Um, (laughs) But this is a story that I identify with, a story of brothers as I mentioned a moment ago we were starting a new sermon series we have finished the ten commandments that was a lot of fun in so many ways surprising ways but today we're starting a new series in some ways though we're going back we're going back to the book of Genesis uh, I don't even know how I didn't look at the dates but a long time ago before the pandemic we did Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, and then we took a break and then we came back and we did the story of Abraham the father of the nation of Israel which is Genesis 12 to 25 and then this past fall we did the story of Jacob uh, and now we come which was basically uh, chapters 27-ish to 35-ish and today we pick up the story of Joseph the last section in the book of Genesis Genesis is the first book in the Christian Bible the first book in the Jewish scriptures and so we will be looking at the last quarter of of that book and when you come to the book of Genesis there are these major figures especially once you get past Adam and Noah you get these major figures and they are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph and when you think about it one scholar said this I appreciate this that Abraham is respected you respect he's so brave and he's so faithful He is the father of faith Abraham is respected uh, Isaac is kind of pitied he's actually the actually didn't even give him a series uh, Isaac is kind of pitied everybody else got a series except him Jacob, as we saw in the fall, he is confusing, he is complex, he is conflicted. In many ways, he is the most modern of the patriarchs. That's what we call these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But Joseph, the one we start with today, Joseph is beloved. Joseph is beloved. Joseph is so beloved, it's such a good story, in fact, that Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote his very first musical that was produced about Joseph Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So before Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote Cats or Phantom of the Opera or Evita, he wrote about this story, okay? Actually, it was performed last month at New Trier. I mean, this is, a, you know, this is a production that's still going on Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's an amazing story on so many levels. On a social level, you have this poor immigrant, Joseph, who is imprisoned, becomes a huge success in his adopted country. It's a political story. You have this servant, this prisoner, who turns into an activist and changes the economic, political, and social policy of his home country. It's an artistic story. It's like there's this allure of the slave who becomes the prince. That's the narrative arc, as we'll talk about this morning, of Joseph. As I mentioned just a moment ago, introducing this, is this is a story of brothers. Uh, the word brother occurs 21 times in the verses that Molly just read. Think about that, 21 times. This is a story about brothers, very clearly. And that's a big theme in the book of Genesis. You've got Cain and Abel. You've got Isaac and Ishmael. You've got Jacob and Esau. And then you've got Joseph and his brothers. This is the story of a, if you feel bad about your family of origin or your current family, uh, this is, you should feel better about this story. This is a story, I don't think there's many murders in your family. This is a story of a deeply dysfunctional family, a weak and wounded family. There's jealousy, there is immaturity, there is favoritism, there is vengeance, there is violence, all within this immediate family. No human character is particularly attractive, at least at the outset of this story, which makes it so surprising. I mean, this is a little bit of a giveaway of the, the conclusion, but it makes it so surprising that this is who God chooses uh, to be like the, the Mount Rushmore of the nation of Israel. The 12, these 12 brothers that are referred to in this story, they are the founding fathers of the nation of Israel. This is like the, the, you know this is, this is the guys. This is them, right? And he chooses these people. A family that is divided by favoritism, immaturity, jealousy, revenge, and violence. I mean, comparative religion is not really my thing, so I may be wrong about this. I'm not super familiar with all the founding narratives. But I can't think of another religion that has a founding narrative that has such repulsive characters when you first meet them. But maybe that's the point. Maybe that is the exact point. Because God will bring about radical transformation within these people. And through these people, he will change the world and actually redeem the world. Jesus is a descendant of these people. Jesus is. So the favoritism of father, sibling rivalry, they all culminate in this, in this act, we'll talk about in a minute, where one brother is sold into slavery like a cry. Can you imagine selling your own brother into slavery? But all of that along with this cover-up, they all are part of God's plan, God's providence, Okay? Because this story, the story of Joseph, and we'll, we'll come back to this again and again, is primarily a story about transformation. It's a story about life change under God's plan or the big theological word, God's providence, okay? And as we'll see, it's an inspiring story. It really is. I mean, it's an inspiring story. There is change, there is hope, there is deep resilience, and there is a beautiful redemption. But I need to tell you this on a personal level, this story is terrifying it is terrifying and if i'm honest it makes me scared and it makes me a little bit angry right because everyone in this story has to change and by god's grace they do but their path to change is all through suffering every single person that has changed and transformed in this story is changed via suffering. A lot of times the story of Joseph is told as this great story of redemption. You know, we kind of get to the end of the story it's a great story, you know, God intended this, uh, you intended this for harm, but God intended this for good. But make no mistake, these people suffered. And that's what makes me angry and just a little bit scared. Because pain is part of the deal. The way up really is the way down. Or to put it in the words of Jesus, to whom this story points, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross. So today I kind of want to introduce the story and introduce the characters to you. Um, this story is a great introduction to this story. I mean, the. the Chapter 37 is a great introduction to the Joseph story. So I just want to look at the four main characters in this story. And the first of those characters is Joseph. When we meet him, he is 17 years old, and he's a lot like 17-year-olds that you know. If you're in high school now or in college, you know somebody like this. Maybe you are this person, and we all remember somebody like this. Uh, second half of verse two, he's a tattletale. He comes back from the field and he reports how bad his brothers is. Somebody, know, yeah, you got, you know that guy. Uh, verse three, he is spoiled and he got the BMW when he was not 16, but 15. And he gets the the coat of many colors and he is arrogant. He tells people how great he is. He has this dream in verses five day and he tells his brothers, basically, you're all going to work for me one day. You're going to bow down to me. I, I'm tempted to tell, anyway, um, I went, I'll say it, it's, this can uh, I went to Vanderbilt, which is the stepping child of the SEC, and you know we got beat up all the time in football. But we had this cheer: "It's all right, it's okay. You're going to work for us one day." Uh, sorry, um, that's not in the notes. Um, but he's also insensitive. He's insensitive because it's not just it's not just that he tells the dream once. He has another dream, which is basically the same dream, and he tells it again. It's like you know you hate me. I'm going to tell you even I'm gonna, you're going to hate me even more. Okay. He's arrogant. He's vain. He's insensitive, and he flaunts his privilege. He, every time you see him in the story, he's wearing his. He like goes out on, the, on the, in the field. And he's wearing his coat again. Shocking lack of generosity. He likes, he's showing off that he is the favorite. I am the beloved. But as things often do with arrogant seventeen-year-olds, things turn on him. When he's, he's uh, in verse thirteen, God sends uh, God date well God too. Uh, but his dad sends him to check on his brothers. They're repulsed when they, when they see him at a distance. They don't say, "There is my brother." They say, there's that dreamer. They determine to kill him. The oldest Reuben intervenes, and they say, let's throw him in a pit. That's verse 21 and following. Then this band of caravan of Ishmaelites come by, and they say, let's just get rid of him. Let's sell him as a slave. Uh, Let's send him to the slave traders. And so they do. They sell him human flesh to Egypt. The last verse, we see he is in Potiphar's house as a slave. Now, this is pretty bad. Maybe you're not very sympathetic to him in those first few verses. You feel sorry for him, though, after this. He's hated. He's bullied, he's abused, he's enslaved, and he is forgotten. So he goes to Egypt. But, and this is getting ahead of ourselves, but this is the whole arc of the story. He gets himself thrown in prison. He spends from age 17 to age 30 in prison. Basically, the best years of his life, the most virile years of his life, his 20s, he's in prison. But as we will see, he's delivered from prison miraculously, and he rises to become the number two most powerful person in all of Egypt. He is like the number two guy in all the land, an immigrant as the prince of Egypt. And he has this major lifetime achievement. Like his resume, here's what it says. I basically saved my corner of the world. (laughs) Like I had this social policy, this political policy where we saved all this food and basically saved the world, okay? You know, I don't know if this is still popular, but, you know, not too long ago, it was popular to think that, that uh, Winston Churchill saved Western civilization. Right? This one person who stood in the gap, stood up to Hitler, stood up against fascism, and saved Western civilization. Well, on a much grander scale, that is what Joseph does. He saves his people. He saves the world by his planning for a famine. But that's not even his greatest achievement. His greatest achievement, as most of us, this is true for all of us, our greatest achievement is not at work. Our greatest achievement is what we do with ourselves. And his greatest achievement is his character. It is a personal achievement. Because at the end of his life, what does he not do? He does not show the vengeance his brothers deserve. He vanquishes his own bitterness. Resists the urge to pay his brothers back. He becomes, despite... I mean, he becomes a reconciled, happy person. At peace with his father, his brothers, and his subjects. And actually... In some level, his peak achievement is after his father's death because his father dies. I know I'm going fast here, but basically his brothers deceive him. They do all this terrible stuff to him. The dad's still alive, so they think he's not going to hold them accountable for all he did until the dad dies. Then the dad dies, but he basically says, no, I forgive you. I'm going to take care of you. He vanquishes his bitterness and does not hold it against them even after his father dies it is the greatest of personal achievements i like what one person said about joseph when he was a child he behaved like a king when he was a king he behaved like a child and his reward this is kind of cool if you're if, if you're not familiar with the bible this isn't that cool but if you're if, you know who presided over his funeral you know who buried his bones Moses, like 400 years later, Moses took his bones, thought he was so important that Moses himself buried his bones in the land of promise. So the question is, what happened to Joseph? What happened? How was he changed? How did he go from being this arrogant little brat to be this person who forgives and accomplishes this major? What happens? You're not going to like the answer. What happened is he suffered and he learned to wait. God's path for Joseph was the school of suffering and waiting, abuse, mistreatment, separation, forgotten, imprisoned. His character drug through the mud. And I'm riffing on Ian, a pastor, a pastor and scholar named Ian Duguid. When I say this, perhaps you this morning are in the training, the school of suffering and of waiting. You feel like your life is on hold. You feel like God has forgotten you. That your gifts are unrecognized. There's no opportunity for you to use who you feel like you are. Perhaps you've been misunderstood or mistreated by your family. Perhaps you've been misunderstood or mistreated by the church or a pastor. Perhaps you have been abused, bullied. Perhaps you're sick or someone you love is sick. Perhaps you are estranged from those that you love most. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe a loved one is descending into dementia. Jesus, I mean Joseph, excuse Jesus too, but Joseph is your guy because his path to change was through the school of suffering and waiting. He knows something, Joseph does, of dark circumstances. Second character in the story, I'm going to take them together, is the brothers The brothers of Joseph, now they're an unsavory lot. I'm not going to go into all the details, but in chapter 34, two of the brothers, Simeon and Levi, they kill a bunch of people unjustly. In Genesis 35, the oldest brother, Reuben, Jacob had four, the father had four wives, and Jacob is kind of a, you know, know, something bad to his dad, uh... He goes and sleeps with one of the other wives, not because of lust so much, because of his power play. And then you have this whole business in 37. This is not a good group of people, particularly. And remember, you might not remember this, but Joseph's mother had died a few chapters ago, and he's the youngest brother. And these older brothers should have pitied their orphan brother. They should have realized that Jacob's, their father's favoritism, though a problem, was not Joseph's fault. They should have pitied their orphan brother. But instead, verse 4, they hate him. They won't speak peacefully to them. Uh, Verse 8, after he tells the dreams, they hate him even more. So when they see him at a distance, what do they do? They label him. The first step in violence, whether it's with your words or with your actions, the first step in violence is always dehumanizing the target. They don't say, here comes our brother. They say, here comes that dreamer. They hate him. They want him dead they throw him into a pit. Maybe the most chilling verse, look with me, it's on the top of the right page, verse 25. After they throw him into a pit, wanting him dead, it says they sat down to eat. Right? They're trying to kill this man, and they just, after they do it, and they sit down to eat. You've heard the story from there. He is sold to a group of, of slave traders who sell him in slavery to Egypt. Then they go home and they lie to their dad. Behold your heroes. Uh, the founder of God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel. But slowly, by the grace of God, these brothers also are changed. They become worthy partners, particularly their leader, Judah, who we'll look at in depth next week. Judah steadily becomes more mature to the point that roughly 20 years after this story, after the story here, he actually offers himself. He's willing to sacrifice himself, which is to say the brothers too are changed. They also are changed, and how were they changed? Joseph passed through the school of suffering. The brothers, they passed through just as terrible, maybe a more terrible school. They passed through the school of exposed sin and repentance. Their sin, the darkness, the evil in their heart, is exposed. There's a hymn that we sing here from time to time by John Newton. Let me read it. The poetry flows well, so I'll read it to you. John Newton writing, he said, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know, and more earnestly seek your face, God. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once God would answer my request, and by love's constraining power, he'd subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, God made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried, will you pursue me to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayers for grace and faith. These inward trials, this is God speaking, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break the schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all in me. Friends, the path to change is often through the painful exposure of what is on the inside in fact it always has somewhat of that path where your sin is exposed and you are forced to confront the evil within you and maybe this is where you find yourself today maybe you're not in the school of suffering so much as the school of exposed sin and the need for repentance you're in the pit of your own selfishness clearly but maybe for the first time you find it baffling that God does not protect you from your sin you pray lead us not into temptation and yet you still keep going there maybe your sin is secret and it's known only to you or maybe your sin is so public that everyone in the community knows how horrid you really are That's all of us, friends. We all must try this path of the exposure of what's in. But even so, God is completely sovereign over your circumstances. You cannot sin outside the will of God. There is nothing you do that surprises God. Nothing. That deepest thing that you don't even admit to yourself that's back there, that thing that if it came on, if I could show it on the screen right here, you would literally run howling out. And by the way, that's true for everybody here. Nobody here doesn't have that thing that you could put on the screen and you'd be like, I can't, I'm so ashamed I have to get out of here. Nobody can ever see my face again. I'm getting in my car and I'm driving to wherever people drive to when they're getting away. That's true for every single person. No matter how pure the person on your left or right is, they have that thing. They've either done it or thought it. You can't surprise God though. Here's this you can't even disappoint Him. You can't even disappoint Him. He knows and He is ready to meet your exposed sin with His grace. And his mercy as he did with Joseph's brothers. Brings us to the third character, Jacob. Now we spent a lot of time with Jacob. I love Jacob. I hate Jacob. Um, We spent a lot of time with him in the fall. He's come a long way. When we first meet him, how many ever years ago, he was a lying, conniving mama's boy. Uh, But God does something in him. Amazing grace, we called it. He wrestles with God. He's renamed. He faces his demons. He's reconciled to his brother who he stole everything from. But the knot in Jacob is not yet untied. He is still twisted after all the good things that have happened to him. He is still twisted on the side. And one thing is he's still impacted by his own father's favoritism. If you remember the story, his mother loved him, but his dad didn't really. His dad, didn't, his dad favored his other brother. And what does he do, though? He, the sins of the father are passed down. That favoritism that he experienced, what does he do? He does the same thing. He is conspicuously favorite towards Joseph. He gives him a coat, and if you follow the narrative closely, it's actually after Joseph is a tattletale. Then he gives him the coat. Here, here's son. Here's your reward for being a tattletale. And it's, but it's not just that he's favoritism. He's also blind. He doesn't see the animosity in his own household between his older sons and his youngest son. He's blind to their deception as well. Verse thirty-one. After they've sent Joseph away to Egypt, the brothers dip the coat in an animal they've killed. They dip the coat in the animal's blood, and they bring the coat to Jacob and said, Look, he's dead. Here's his coat. Is this your son's coat? Yes, it's, yeah. In verse 34, and following, he's inconsolable. He mourns. No one can lift his spirits. His favorite son is dead, or so he thinks. The awful irony of this, that in being deceived by a garment and the blood of a dead animal, it was a garment and a dead animal's blood that deceived his father. Terrible. It happens the same same thing he did, happens to him. Now, Jacob was about this time about 100 years older, so he was two-thirds of the way through his life. And he continues to be spiritually blind. He's not aware of himself, he's not aware of other people, and he's not really aware of God. After all these years, he still needs a few more rounds in God's training of change. He still needs more of God. And maybe you're here. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're in the early part of life, but maybe you're in the last third of your life. You thought by this point you would have more love. You thought by this time you'd have less doubts. You thought you would have greater faith. You thought, if you're honest, that your family would be fine by now. Maybe it was a wreck when you were younger, but you thought that your children and your grandchildren would be okay by now. And they're not. Not in the way that you want them to be. And maybe like Jacob, God is teaching you that you never get past your need of his grace. You never get past his need of his power. You never outlive. You may be 15, you may be 85, you never live out. You never outlive your need for God's grace. You never get to clarity, you never get to detachment, you never get to own. That, that is a lie. No one gets there, not in this life. And maybe you need the story of Jacob to remind you that you too need God's grace and it brings us finally and quickly to the, the fourth character in this story and that is God God does not speak but he is ever so active in this story it's interesting uh, he's present but hidden and actually this is where this story starts to make more resonance with us you know God in the early stories Abraham and Isaac he's talking more he's showing up as angels and all this stuff but here he really just speaks through activity through his actions uh, through even what we would call apparent coincidences we call this providence uh, verses let me, let's see a couple of the apparent coincidences verse 15 through 17 uh, Joseph's looking for his brothers and there's this random they, they spend three verses on this he's trying to make a point the author is that there's this random person wandering in this field that who tells Joseph where his brothers are that's not a random person that's not a coincidence God put that person there And then a few verses later, beginning in verse 25, there's this random path. You know, this is like a desolate land. And there happens to be a caravan of Ishmaelites going to Egypt that pass by. That's not random. That's not a coincidence. God is orchestrating these events. And also, he works through the wickedness and evil. He works through the favoritism of a father. He works through sibling rivalry. He works through slave trading. He works through lies. Now, let me say this clearly. God handles sin sinlessly. He does not approve of the brothers' treachery. They were responsible for their crime. He did not make them do it, but he also did not need them to accomplish his plan. As Joni Erickson Tata says, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And sometimes his perfect plan is through the eye of a storm, even through the eye of this evil storm of slave trading and deception. And if you need a greater example of that, the greatest example of God working through sin is in the death of his own son, where the perfect son of God is put to death in human hands. And what does it bring about? It brings about our salvation. We are gathered here today because of the cross of Jesus Christ. So, in closing, I want us to th- have a couple things to take away. This is kind of an introductory sermon, getting to know these characters a little bit, setting the stage for the next several weeks. Now, I want us to think about what we can learn just a little bit from, uh, about our relationship with others, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with God from these characters in Genesis 37. First, our relationship with others. Here's my, here's my little aphorism. Be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a battle. Every person you meet, the person sitting next to you, the person sitting behind you, the person across the kitchen table, the person at your work that is so aggravating, they are fighting a battle. There's something going on that you may not see, you may know, you may not, but they are fighting a battle. And also this, when it comes to other people, believe that other people can change. Believe that other people can change. You know the story of the old of the the tortoise that's going along and the kid hits it with a stick and it sucks its head back in, and so then it sticks its head out just a little bit less this time, and the kid hits it again, and it goes back in further. It keeps on happening, and finally, what happens? Turtle doesn't stick its head out. You got to believe that people can change. Don't keep hitting them with a stick. These people all change. Believe that people can change. Be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a battle. With yourself, how do you think about yourself? This is hard. Learn to love the story that God has given you. You know, I so oftentimes I want a different story sometimes. Things are happening, things aren't the way. Learn to love the story that God has given you. It is the perfect medicine for your life. Your life. God gave you your story. I know that some of you are suffering, so this is hard to say, but it is true. God gave you your story, whatever is happening to you right now. Because he loves you. And there's something he wants to do in whatever circumstances it is you are in. Corey ten Boom writing about the Holocaust, writing from the Holocaust. Cory ten Boom says this. Someone, one of you sent this to me this week. There is no pit so deep. Think about this in your own circumstances. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Learn to love your own story. But finally, with God, remember the gospel, and remember that the way up is always the way down. You see, Joseph is the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. He is the hero-victim, and Joseph paves the way for the story of Jesus, because like Joseph, Jesus was mistreated by his own brothers. You may not remember this from the gospels, but in the gospels, Jesus is mistreated by his brothers until after the resurrection, Joseph was an ungrateful, ungenerous braggart who later in life was, able, was tempted by lust and vengeance. But Jesus was tempted in every way and never succumbed to temptation. Joseph was a spoiled, braggy brat and he suffered for it. But Jesus was perfect and he suffered far worse. He suffered far, far worse. The template of Joseph points us forward to Jesus because this is with the story of Jesus from Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind in you of Christ Jesus. Jesus was in the form of God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But Jesus made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human appearance, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and that in his name every knee will bow. Jesus humbled himself so that he might be exalted. The way up is the way down. This is the season of Easter. This is the season of resurrection. Our last hymn. So we've chosen all our scriptures and hymns based on this is the season of Easter. Uh, You know, I like the idea that if you're going to celebrate Lent for 40 days about Jesus' crucifixion, you need to celebrate Easter for longer. So we're going to celebrate Easter for 50 days. That's still Pentecost. Our last song this morning. I love our last song. It's called We Will Feast in the House of Zion. We Will Feast in the House of Zion. It is written by a a woman whose voice I love, whose songwriting I love. Her name is Sandra McCracken. And she says, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. She is looking forward to the gospel truth. I did not know this until recently though. But Sandra McCracken wrote that song. She wrote the song that we're going to sing in just a few minutes. And what happened to her is her husband cheated on her with her best friend and left her. And it Reflecting on that circumstance in her life caused her to write, we will feast in the house of Zion. If you look at the last stanza, every vow we've broken and betrayed, you are the faithful one. From the garden to the grave, bind us together, bring shalom. Friends, remember, wherever you are, remember The gospel of Jesus Christ. Because yes, I don't know where your sin suffering are today. But I know this, that one day if you are with Jesus and in him, we will feast in the house of Zion. Amen. Let it be so. Our great God, we thank you for these stories that, though remote from us in time, are so personal, so existential. We feel the evil of our heart. And we feel your grace and love for us. Thank you for these stories. Thank you for who they represent and how they point us forward to your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.